I'm Finn J.D. John, F.J. at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on October 1st of 2022 under the headline, The Bloody Manhunt for the King of Western Outlaws. Here we go. The golden age of outlaws had a good run, almost 40 years. It kicked off just after the Civil War, when thousands of battle-hardened Confederate veterans with nothing to lose spread out across the western frontier, and it ended in a field in eastern Washington on August 5, 1902. That was the date when the last Golden Age outlaw, Harry Tracy, went out in a blaze of gunfire following the bloodiest prison break in the state of Oregon's history, followed by a two-month-long, even bloodier manhunt. Harry Tracy was the last of the breed of Wild West outlaws like Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, and Billy the Kid. He wasn't technically an Oregonian. His real name was Harry Severns, and he was born in 1875 in Pittsville, Wisconsin a child of a highly respected and successful family. He was bright, outgoing, and likable, and he gave no early signs to anyone that he might be headed for a life of crime and murder. By the way, there are some sources that claim otherwise, but those sources are either spinning stories or quoting other sources that are. During the two months when Tracy's name was in the national headlines, um, the public was hungry for stories about him, and many idle rumors got quoted and embellished in newspapers and quoted later in magazine stories. Some of these are still being represented as facts in pulpy retellings today, such as the false claim that a teenage Tracy raped and murdered his Sunday school teacher. Didn't happen. Tracy had a very ordinary childhood. That changed, though, soon after he left the nest. He changed his name to Tracy and launched a career in robbery and theft that led him to a gunfight with a pursuing posse in Colorado in which a member of the posse was shot and killed quite possibly by Tracy, who was always a crack shot. He was arrested and imprisoned. Within a short time, he escaped, skipped town, and did it all again. By the time Tracy arrived in Portland, he was still only 23 years old, but he'd been in plenty of trouble and in and out of plenty of jails and prisons. He had proved himself to be remarkably good at breaking out of them. Of course, in order to be good at breaking out of prison, a criminal has to be pretty bad at not getting caught and put in prison, and this was clearly the case with Tracy. Pop historian Stuart Holbrook famously called him a garden-variety idiot, and although that might be overstating things a bit, it's quite clear that he was no master criminal. To be blunt, he was just bad at it. Perhaps that's why, having escaped from his latest penal institution junket in Utah, he apparently decided to get a fresh start and go straight in a new place far away from the scenes of his many crimes. Upon arrival in Portland, Tracy met and befriended a local rowdy named David Merrill. Shortly after that, Tracy actually married Merrill's sister, Rose. Reading between the lines, it seems very likely that Tracy planned on going straight in Portland, settling down, starting a family, thinking about the future. 
certainly there was an unusually long period of time between when he arrived in Portland and when he started getting in trouble there. Three years. As noted, Tracy was just not a skillful enough criminal to go three years without getting caught or even suspected if he was actively committing crimes. However, eventually Tracy did get back into the business, and he and Merrill started pulling stick-up jobs around town. They went about it with a particular style and panache that quickly got them into the headlines as the Macintosh Bandits and the False Face Bandits. Portland police, trying to find the culprits, started rounding up the usual suspects, as the saying goes, contacting various crooks and suspects that they knew to be at large in town and seeing what they had been up to one nights when people had gotten robbed. Tracy, a relative newcomer to Portland, was not on that list, but unfortunately for him, David Merrill was. And when a detective dropped by for a surprise visit to check him out, he found clear proof that Merrill was one of the bandits. Searching the house, he found Merrill hiding upstairs and arrested him. Then the cops lurked in the house and waited for Tracy to return. Now, the sources aren't completely clear on this, but it appears most likely that the reason Tracy wasn't at the house was that he was actually in the act of robbing a nearby butcher shop at the time. Coming home with the loot, Tracy saw a strange, well-dressed man waiting for him and decided he didn't like the lay. He turned to run, trading pistol shots with the detective as he fled. A streetcar was passing by, and he jumped, grabbed onto it, and rode safely away, clinging to the outside of it like some kind of late Victorian, early Edwardian Spider-Man. But the streetcar's driver wasn't having any of that, and after he realized what was going on, he stopped the streetcar and actually disabled it so that if Tracy tried to force him at gunpoint to start it back up, it wouldn't do him any good. Tracy jumped off, started to flee again, but by an odd coincidence, the car had stopped right outside the front door of the butcher shop that Tracy had just robbed. The butcher's son was ready with a shotgun full of birdshot, which he let Tracy have at relatively close range. Wounded, Tracy managed to run a short distance, but he was quickly surrounded and arrested. And that is how Harry Tracy came to be a resident in the Oregon State Penitentiary. He and David Merrill both checked in, as it were, in late 1901. According to the book by the pseudonymous Prisoner Number 6435, both Tracy and Merrill were a lot of trouble as prison inmates. The glib, friendly Tracy was able to talk his way out of a lot of the trouble, but Merrill was always a problem, and the warden took to keeping an Oregon boot shackle on him for extended periods of time. He wore the boot so often in his short time in the pen that it actually disfigured his ankle with a big, ugly scar. More on that scar later. Merrill wasn't wearing the boot on the morning of June 9th, 1902. History might have been different if he had, because that was the day that Tracy had planned for their breakout. He had gotten someone to sneak some money in for him, and he'd used it to bribe someone, no one knows who, to this day, to hide a pair of 30-30 Winchester rifles in a pattern box in the prison foundry. He'd also bribed a soon-to-be-released inmate named Harry Wright to, after he was out, get a rope ladder and toss it over the prison wall for him to retrieve. Wright had been released on schedule and had done his bit. They had the ladder. All was in readiness. So on that morning, Tracy and Merrill reported to work in the prison foundry, went straight to the designated boxes, opened them up, saw the guns in them, reached inside, and came up shooting. The two guards in the room were dead before they knew what was happening, and the two men ran to the door. Outside, they shot the guards out of the two watchtowers closest to their ladder, 
shot a fellow inmate who tried to stop them, and used a fifth guard whom they had taken at gunpoint outside the gate as a human shield while they retreated out of rifle range. Then Tracy coldly murdered their shield, and they ran. What followed was a two-month manhunt covering most of northwest Oregon and much of western Washington, as Tracy and Merrill tried to make it to Hole in the Wall Pass, Wyoming, headquarters of the Wild Bunch gang. Not knowing that Butch Cassidy and company had fled to Argentina the previous year, Posses were on their track almost immediately, of course, and bloodhounds were brought in from Walla Walla, but Tracy circled back around and mixed his scent with that of the posse, and the dogs lost his trail. The governor offered a reward, then doubled it. As the weeks went by, the reward was raised until it was $8,000, alive or dead. That's $280,000 in modern currency, an enormous bounty. This inspired dozens of ad hoc packs of citizens to grab a shotgun and a flask of whiskey and posse up and join the hunt. The result was a chaotic landscape of heavily armed drunks looking hopefully over every backyard fence for signs of Tracy and Merrill. The whole damned country was full of militia and many of the boys was potted, Detective Joe Day of the Portland Police Department told writer Stuart Holbrook many years later. They shot at everything, and Clark and Cowlitz County sounded like the Spanish-American War all over again. It was the most dangerous place I was ever in. These boozy posses may have made the countryside dangerous for everyone, but they would have been no match for a professional killer like Tracy. Even stone-sober law enforcement professionals had trouble on the few occasions when they caught up with him that summer. Seemed like the gun work was the only part of criminal enterprise that Tracy was actually good at, and he was very good at it. Well, Tracy wasn't long in Oregon. On June 16th, he and Merrill held up three men on the south bank of the Columbia River in Portland and made them row them across to Washington. And then after that, newspaper readers got to follow their progress by the reports of farmers and homeowners. The way this would work was the outlaws would approach them with their guns out, request dinner, make some small talk, requisition some supplies, and be on their way. One such homeowner reported on July 3rd that Tracy had appeared alone and had told him that he had killed David Merrill. I was tired of him anyhow, Tracy said, according to this citizen. Tracy had said he was headed for Hole in the Wall Pass, but for some reason he didn't seem to be in too big of a hurry to get there. After reaching Washington, his trail really meandered. He spent months lurking around the Seattle area, hijacked another boat to get to Bainbridge Island, came back forced a farmer to buy him some fresh ammunition and a new revolver, and even kidnapped a Swedish farmhand as a personal servant for a few days. But by the end of the month, Tracy seems to have decided that it was time to go to ground, and he left Seattle headed east. He resupplied from a homeowner in Palmer on July 23rd, and then was not heard from till August 5th when a farmer near Odessa came home and found a note pinned to his door. To whom it may concern, it read. Tell Sheriff Kudahi to take a tumble and let me alone, or I will fix him plenty. I will be on my way to Wyoming. If your horses are good, we'd swap with you. Thanks for a cool drink, Tracy. But time was running out. The following day, Tracy found himself pinned down by rifle fire in a wheat field near Creston, and this time he couldn't shoot his way out. After taking a bullet that cut a leg artery and another that broke his other leg, the dying bandit gave himself the coup de grace with his Colt 45, bringing the curtain down on the Wild West outlaw era in proper Wild West outlaw style. Harry Tracy had been on the lam for 58 days and had killed 11 people along the way. During that time, he'd furnished eager newspaper readers with a gripping story, and by the end of it, he was the most famous person in the country. 
When he was finally dead, souvenir hunters stripped his corpse bare of clothes and hair, and authorities felt it was necessary to melt his face off with vitriol, that's sulfuric acid, so that his corpse would not be dug up and put on display by some enterprising body snatcher later on. Now, this face-melting thing might lead some to wonder if the body brought back really was that of Harry Tracy. After all, the reward on his head was huge. If we can believe then-inmate Joseph Bunko Kelly, though— that, that's not always a smart thing to do, but in this case, it's probably safe. If we can believe Bunko, the body that was brought back to the state penitentiary and displayed to all the inmates was definitely that of Terry Tracy. But Bunko did report something else that's odd in this story, and that's this. The body brought back to the pen that was identified as David Merrill's was not David Merrill. It was somebody else. In his 1907 book, Kelly writes that David Merrill's leg had a big, ugly scar from the many months he'd had to wear the Oregon boot shackle. Remember, we mentioned that earlier. Kelly, who worked in the prison bathhouse as a trustee, had seen that scar many times. Merrill's body had been found on July 14th after two weeks baking in the sun, and the face was unrecognizable. But the skin of the ankle was still intact and unscarred. Of course, Bunko Kelly being Bunko Kelly, it's probably not smart to take this as straight gospel. But it's definitely not outside the realm of possibility that Tracy, knowing he was basically doomed, might have done his wife's brother a final favor by letting him go home and framing up some poor bystander to stand in for the corpse. Who that bystander could have been is not clear. Tracy was the last of a dying breed, the breed of the hard-living, deadly American Wild West outlaw. A few years later, the rest of the old hole-in-the-wall gang, having been tracked down and identified by Pinkerton detectives, would be wiped out by a detachment of Bolivian soldiers. America was changing, and with it Oregon. There was no room for men like Harry Tracy in the new America, not even in the rough, wild frontier state of Oregon. Key sources in this story included works by Joseph Bunko Kelly, Prisoner Number 6435, David J. Kratchik, Stuart Holbrook, and a correspondence with Jim Gardner, who is a member of the Severn family. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficarra. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes come out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m. So it won't be long before the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up and enjoy. Until it is, go out there and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend, too, with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.